Did Acosta's efforts at damage control ultimately seal his doom? The lead starts right now. He's out. President Trump's labor secretary is leaving as critics slam a plea deal he helped broker for an alleged child rapist, leaving yet another major vacancy at the top of the government. Bracing for Barry, New Orleans already filling with water and the tropical storm has not even hit yet. Why the city that has already seen so much weather misery is facing an unprecedented flood threat right now. Plus, he gave up the gavel, then picked up a hammer. President Trump today unloading on Paul Ryan after Ryan basically said he doesn't have a clue. Welcome to the lead on Jake Tapper. We begin with the politics lead, President Trump on defund, defense, unloading at the White House today as yet another cabinet secretary leaves the administration under the shadow of scandal. This time it's a labor secretary, Alex Acosta, standing next to the president this morning, claiming he is choosing to leave willingly so he will no longer be a distraction. But privately, President Trump was stewing about the unwanted attention Acosta was bringing to the Trump administration, according to a senior White House official. And the president was worried about the steady stream of revelations to come involving the 2008 plea deal Acosta, as U.S. attorney in Florida, brokered with well-connected multimillionaire and accused child rapist Jeffrey Epstein, who earlier this week was indicted in New York for child trafficking. Sources also tell CNN that President Trump went from praising Acosta to privately questioning why the victims had not been notified about that plea agreement ahead of time as mandated by law. And that's a key question many of us have been asking and that a federal judge in February found should have been done, ruling that Acosta broke the law. As CNN's Caitlin Collins now reports, Acosta's exit comes as President Trump is weighing whether another top official should soon be headed to that busy Trump administration departure lounge. The day at the White House began with an exit. Alex called me this morning and he wanted to see me. As Labor Secretary Alex Acosta announced he'll resign amid intense scrutiny over the role he played in Jeffrey Epstein's plea deal 11 years ago that helped him avoid federal charges. I do not think it is right and fair for this administration's Labor Department to have Epstein as the focus. With Acosta by his side, President Trump insisted the decision was Acosta's. This was him, not me, because I'm with him. But the writing was on the wall Thursday night, when CNN first reported Trump had grown skeptical that Acosta's press conference would calm the waters. Today's world treats victims very, very differently. Sources said the president went from praising Acosta privately to questioning why the victims were never notified about the plea deal. Yet today, he insisted otherwise. I thought Alex did a great job. For Trump, Acosta's resignation comes as a relief, amid renewed scrutiny over his own relationship with Epstein. Though today, he said it wasn't a distraction. Well, Alex believed that. I'm willing to live with anything. The departure leaves the president with another acting secretary in his cabinet. We have, as everybody knows, we have Pat Pazella, who right now is a deputy, and he'll be acting for a period of time. The acting labor secretary will be in good company because the Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, and multiple other federal agencies are all run by acting heads. While experts say permanent cabinet secretaries provide more stability, the president prefers it his way, without the confirmation hearings. I sort of like acting. 
gives me more flexibility. Critics have also noted that outgoing Labor Secretary Acosta was the only Hispanic in the president's cabinet. A detailed Trump noted today. He was a great student at Harvard. He's Hispanic, which I, which I so admire, because maybe it was a little tougher for him and maybe not. Now, Jake, we've reported on this show before the president's frustrations with his director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, and it appears those frustrations have revived themselves. And now sources are telling CNN that the president is once again weighing replacing Dan Coats. A national security official denied that this would happen anytime soon, and another person offered a word of caution because the president is, of course, hesitant with these departures to make it look or add to that perception that this administration is chaotic. So, of course, since there was just another departure this morning, it might buy Dan Coates some more time. Jake. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Uh, let's chew over all of this. Uh, Jackie, let me start with you. Um, Let's talk about the display of President Trump and Acosta coming out together. The president praises Acosta, uh, says it was Acosta's decision, his decision alone. Uh, do, you, do you buy it, first of all? Well, when you look at Acosta's uh, letter, resignation letter, it was very complimentary to the president, thanking him, talking about how he's going to make America great again, and that's why he has to step aside so he's not a distraction. I haven't heard anything behind the scenes that contradict that. I mean, they, they, there had been people inside the White House, who had been urging the president to kick Acosta to the curb when this Epstein uh, uh, scandal, Mick Mulvaney, uh, that was because of regulatory, but also there were others because of what was happening with Epstein. They saw that rising tide that this wasn't going to go away, and it's not going to go away. And the president was resistant at that time. So, uh, David Urban, uh, first of all, we should note for our viewers, uh, you're a Trump 2020 (laughs) campaign advisor, also a D.C. (laughs) lobbyist. You work on behalf of energy, defense and transportation companies. It's like a tagline. That's well, it's a, my new tagline. Just full disclosure. But uh, let's take a look at the sheer number of sure. high-profile exits from uh, the Trump administration. Uh, and here's some, top, uh, some of the top uh, positions which are being held in just an acting capacity right now. That's a lot of acting secretaries. The president has said he likes acting positions. It gives him more flexibility. But obviously the Constitution <laughs> says the Senate gets to advise and consent. Uh, I understand it's easier for the president, but that's not how it's supposed to yeah, be done. But so, so, so let's not forget that some of this blame lies squarely on the shoulders of, uh, of our good friend, the minority leader, who is Chuck Schumer, Chuck Schumer, who's adeptly using his rule in terms of, you know, burning the amount of time. There's it's, it's so, you know, most of America doesn't understand the arcane rules of the Senate, but uh, the Senate Majority Leader has been very adept at doing that and, and keeping people at bay for quite some time and, and not allowing people to get, get hearings. And, you know, it's just he's doing a good job at it. So there are some of these folks, there are vacancies, legitimate vacancies that need to be filled. And some of the folks are just kind of treading water because but the president fact, hasn't named even. No, no, but, yeah, no, no, exa- exactly. No, he's named some folks like, like Secretary. But he, Esper- but he doesn't blame Schumer for it. He's, he's- no, no, but, 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 but uh, Senator Schumer should get, get the, some of the blame should Fly on his shoulders for a lot of the folks that aren't confirmed that are that have been many, nominated. How many that have been nominated. About? I mean, oh, but listen. So we're not so, talking so, about major. Oh, so acting. So listen. Level so everybody, people. listen. As, as we all know, right around this table and in America, they should know this, right? Everybody's in the acting capacity in this administration, right? Even if you are the secretary, you may not be the secretary the next day. So when you're, but when you're, explain explain why. why. Yeah, you're in it. No, but it it matters. I mean, look, it is about transparency and accountability. I mean, someone who is has to be confirmed by the Senate. 
I would argue, Jack and I were just talking about this, maybe they didn't do the best job uh, with Secretary right. Acosta because we should have had this conversation only about this Only Tim Kaine. He was the, was only, the only one who asked, about, to ask about it. But it matters because, you know, a person has to go through a process of being confirmed and then they become the actual secretary. And there is, again, transparency. There is accountability, not just to the president, but to the American people. No, I, and part of the reason that the president, I think, seems to like, you know, when he says he likes it, he's running it more like a corporation where you can fire at will a lot more easily than when you've had somebody who has only been there six months who's an acting. It's a very different. And we don't know exactly what's going to happen next with that position. Mm -hmm. But the deputy secretary of labor (laughs) uh, who might become the acting secretary of labor, he's a guy named Pat Pizzella. uh, And there are questions about this possibly new acting secretary of labor was a lobbyist for sweatshops in a previous life. Uh, Here he is from his confirmation hearing. Here's Senator Al Franken in 2017 asking him about this. The key issues you lobbied on was to block bipartisan legislation for basic worker protections in the northern Mariana Islands where garment manufacturers could produce clothing labeled made in the USA without having to comply with U.S. minimum wage laws. Is this going to be a problem for the Trump administration, too, you think, this new guy? If they want to confirm him and appoint him in a permanent capacity, it will be. Democrats are definitely going to have an issue with that. But it's also something that's a bit of a pattern with the Trump administration because it also exists in the EPA where there were appointments of high-level people who were lobbyists for energy corporations and people who flat out said that they wanted to undo the EPA and yet they were put in positions to run it. And what do you make? Do you think Democrats are going to come at this guy? I, hope, I mean, I certainly hope so. I think I hope they've actually at least learned the lesson that it is important to have uh, real scrutiny uh, of these folks and, and where appropriate, you know, go through the, the process of actually making sure they are not confirmed. All right. Everyone stick around. We've got more to talk about coming up. Bracing for Tropical Storm Barry. Will the already taxed levees and draining system hold up as the storm churns towards the Louisiana Gulf Coast? Then that women We're being called these names under an American flag. We cannot allow for this. Dramatic testimony today by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She was apparently exasperated. Some of her peers were in tears. Also, somebody on the other side got emotional. We'll show you why. Stay with us. Breaking news in the national lead now, the Gulf Coast already inundated with flooding. Now officials there are racing to get ready for Tropical Storm Barry. The governor of Louisiana issued this warning today. No one should take this storm lightly. The real danger in this storm was never about the wind anyway. It's always been about the rain, and that remains a very significant threat. Let me show you one of the big problems here. This is New Orleans, where flooding from the Mississippi River is already at an all-time high. Then you add slow-moving tropical storm Barry to the mix. Its storm surge combined with all the rain could make for a flooding disaster, which is why mandatory evacuations are underway in low-lying areas right now. We have teams down in the Gulf Coast and in the CNN Weather Center to show us what might be about to hit the U.S. Let's start with CNN meteorologist uh, Allison Chinchar. Allison, how strong will this tropical storm likely get and how long will it be a problem for the Gulf Coast? 
Right, so let's start with the first question. We do still expect this to intensify a little bit more, getting up to a low-end Category 1 storm right before it makes landfall. That landfall is expected Saturday morning in Louisiana. The concern going forward is all of the rain that it ends up bringing to all the other locations that it then continues to go on as it pushes further off to the north. But in the short term, everyone wants to know, what are the implications going to be for a city, say, like New Orleans, which is prone to flooding and can often have a lot of big issues with that. Here's the thing. One of the biggest concerns right now is actually going to be storm surge. You can see those outer bands are what's going to pull that water all the way in towards the city of New Orleans. Here's the thing. Then everybody starts to wonder, how does the storm surge impact the levees? Right now in this particular region, we're expecting about three to five feet of storm surge. The problem is as it does that and comes back over, it has the potential to overtop that eastern edge of the levee right there on the Mississippi River. From there, then the question becomes what happens to all of that water? Well, it actually starts to flow backwards towards the city of New Orleans. It basically becomes funneled and pushes all the way back. The concern then is if those water levels, Jake, can get to 20 feet or higher, the levees will be overtopped, and that's when you start to see New Orleans begin to flood. All right. Thank you so much. Let's go to CNN's Gary Tuckman right now. He's live in New Orleans. And Gary, city officials there, they say they have confidence in the levee and pumping systems, but people who live in previously flood-prone areas have good reason to be concerned. Well, that's right, Jake. The people who live in this area where I am right now have very good reason to be concerned because this area was devastated during Katrina. This is the Lakeview section of New Orleans on the shores of the 630-square-mile Lake Pontchartrain, which is behind me. When we arrived here about two hours ago, there was no water on this road. There's been virtually no rain, but it's already flooding. Now, next to us is this water pumping station. This station was built after Katrina. They're literally pumping water right now from this street and from property back into Lake Pontchartrain. And this is right next to the 17th Street Canal, one of the largest canals in New Orleans, surrounded by the 17th Street levees, new levees built after Hurricane Katrina, 20 feet tall to protect the city. But before Katrina, the levees that were there were compromised. It was split open on the east side into the Lakeview section. Torrents of water came through, other levees were destroyed, and that's what contributed to hundreds of people dying here in New Orleans during Katrina. A total of up to 1,800 people dying in New Orleans and other parts of this area from Hurricane Katrina. So there's no mandatory evacuation order in effect, but people are here. They're being promised that they're doing everything they can, the city of New Orleans, to keep it safe, but they are a bit jittery. Jake, back to you. Understandably so. Gary Tuckman in New Orleans, thanks so much. Let's bring in Republican Senator John Kennedy of the state of Louisiana. He spoke with President Trump about the storm earlier today. He's joining us on the phone from Baton Rouge. Senator Kennedy, always good to have you on. Tropical Storm Barry now expected to make landfall overnight tonight. What's your biggest concern right now? The water. Um, it, we're starting to feel the effects. I mean, we you can see it. I just came from uh, New Orleans on Baton Rouge. Now, you can smell it. You can smell that a storm's coming. I think it'll hit in about 15 hours. It's going to go right up the middle of the state. Uh, It's about 200 miles wide. Uh, Winds, you know, not good, but I've been through worse storms. Water is our concern. Number one, you get 10 to 20 inches of rain, you're going to flood, even if you're on Pike's Peak. Uh, We also are concerned about the levees overtopping. Um, every, look, Jake, every, I've been through a lot of these. Every storm is different, but, but they have two things in common. They make you realize that the, the power of nature can humble the power of human beings anytime it wants to. 
And uh, the other thing I always learn is if you're not scared, you're either a fool or a liar. Right. But we're, uh, we're, we're ready, as ready as we can be. The president called me early this morning. He's declared an emergency. We're getting great help from Homeland Security and from FEMA. And uh, my people are tough as a boot, and we'll get through it. The governor of Louisiana, John Bell Edwards, he was asked today if Louisiana is better prepared for a hurricane compared to past storms such as Katrina. Take a listen to his response. Our state is better prepared, but that comes with a caveat. You never know what Mother Nature is going to serve until she has served it. Do you believe that preparations in Louisiana have been adequate, Senator? Yes, I do, and, and and they're better. I was there during Katrina. I was serving as a state treasurer. It was a dumpster fire at all levels, federal, state, and local. We had nowhere to go but up, but we're infinitely better prepared. All three levels of government are coordinated. Uh, the federal resources are here. Um, that, that doesn't mean that, that this is going to be a cakewalk or this is the Big Rock Candy Mountain here. This is a serious storm. But we're as ready as we can be for it. We have our protocols that have all been followed. There are people, obviously, uh, in low-lying areas that are under mandatory evacuations. Some of them, however, are are not leaving. Take a listen uh, to the reasoning. I'm worried, but I don't know. It's just not that bad of a storm, I don't think. I could be wrong. We'll see. As long as you got electricity, you can still make it. Yeah. uh, I'm not going nowhere for this. I don't see it's going to be too bad. Senator, what's your message to people who are in the mandatory evacuation areas who are not leaving and who think that they can just ride out the storm? Well, my my, my first response is a lot of people stay to protect their property. The most important things in life aren't things. Worry about your life. Worry about your family's life. We've got shelters set up all across South Louisiana. All you got to do is give somebody a call. Uh, and and uh, we'll come get you, and we'll get you to safer ground. Uh, don't 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 be stuck on stupid. Um, get out uh, if if you if you feel at all at risk. The the problem with the the rainfall and the levee topping is we don't know exactly where, if at all, the levee will top, and and we can't predict where the heavy rain will be. Now the gentleman you just had on, he may be fine, but if he gets twenty inches of rain over. A short period of time, two days, he's likely to flood. And uh, he's, he's putting himself at risk. All right, Senator John Kennedy, uh, Republican of Louisiana, thank you so much. We always appreciate your time, sir. Thanks, Jake. Coming up next, living in fear inside a church. One mother's desperate attempt to avoid this weekend's ice raids. Stay with us. Our politics lead now emotional testimony today in a hearing about the way that migrant children and other undocumented immigrants have been treated under the Trump administration. Several Democratic lawmakers detailed the horrific conditions they say they witnessed while touring detention centers on the border. This comes as the House Oversight Committee revealed that at least 18 children under the age of two were separated from their parents, in some cases for up to six months. CNN Sunland Serfati reports today on a dramatic day on Capitol Hill. Children being separated from their parents in front of an American flag. Emotional testimony from House Democrats. 
The fear in their eyes won't be forgotten, Mr. Speaker. About what they saw during their visit last week to two border facilities in Texas. I believed the canker sores that I saw in their mouths because they were only allowed to be fed unnutritious food. I believed them when they said they were sleeping on concrete floors for two months. First-hand accounts of the conditions and encounters with detained migrants. She asked me if she deserved to be treated like this if they deserve to be treated like dogs. The Department of Homeland Security has denied some of the allegations, including that women had to drink from toilets, saying water was available. The acting DHS inspector general today also sounding the alarm. We remain concerned that it is not taking sufficient steps to address the overcrowding and prolonged detention we observed particularly with respect to single adult detainees. The former customs enforcement chief also emotional, defending his agency. I'm the only one in this room who's wore a green uniform and been on that line. I'm the only one in this room that stood in the back of a tractor trailer surrounded by 19 dead aliens, including a five-year-old little boy that suffocated in death in his father's arms. I was there, and I saw, and I smelled it, and it's terrible. And I still, I still have nightmares to this day. This isn't just about enforcing laws, it's about saving lives. I found enough dead bodies in my, in my day. All this as the House Oversight Committee today released a new report. Of the at least 2,648 children who were separated from their parents, at least 18 were infants and toddlers under the age of two, including nine babies under the age of one, kept apart for 20 days to six months. The administration's child separations were more harmful, traumatic, and chaotic than previously known. Meantime, today, Vice President Mike Pence and a group of Republican senators are making their own visit to a border facility in Texas. All Democrats invited to join them declined. That derided by Senator Tom Tillis today, tweeting, lots of empty seats since not a single Democrat showed up. And the vice president's trip today also follows the media being given access yesterday to one of the same facilities that the Democrats had toured a few weeks ago. There were actually very few migrants left in that facility, despite the dramatic overcrowding in recent weeks. That likely due to the fact that Congress approved funding earlier in June, uh, likely easing some of the overcrowding by sending some of the children to HHS facilities. Jake. All right, Simon Zerfati on Capitol Hill. President Trump confirmed today that on Sunday, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, will begin nationwide deportation raids. The president insisted that the primary focus will be on criminals, but sources tell CNN that among the targets this weekend are hundreds of families whose only apparent crime is that they're here illegally and have ignored previous deportation orders. The pending raids and the confusion about them is creating fear and panic in some communities. And as CNN's Rosa Flora shows us now, one undocumented woman in Chicago whose children are U.S. citizens has even taken to hiding in a house of worship. Francisca Lino has lived in Chicago for some 20 years. She is the mom of four U.S. citizens who she raised in the outskirts of town. But for the past two years, Lino has lived inside a church, away from her family and hoping to not be deported. Me da como pánico. Lino, who is undocumented, says she gets in a panic thinking about getting pulled away and stashed in overcrowded detention facilities she has seen on the news. She took sanctuary in this church, a place federal agents typically avoid raiding. Do you have a plan if there is a raid here in this church? No. But now she's worried that it could all come to an end this weekend 
when planned ice raids in cities across the country, including Chicago, are set to begin. For more than a decade, a time span covering administrations of both parties, Lino checked in with immigration officials twice a year, and there was never any issue until Donald Trump took office. CNN was there in 2017, the morning of our first check-in during the Trump era. That brings me a lot of fear. It was an emotional affair for her entire family. First, an immigration agent told her she could stay for another year. I feel very happy because I was given another year. And then... Sir, cameras away from the building. Her joy turned to heartbreak when she was asked to return to the federal building in four months with her bags packed and a one-way ticket out of the country. Her daughter became physically ill. You were having a panic attack upstairs? Yeah, I couldn't breathe. I, I was choked up. I couldn't talk. Lino says that's what hurts her the most about being hunkered down these last couple of years, is not being able to simply hug her daughters outside of this church especially when they needed their mom. And that's something she may never do again on U.S. soil come this weekend. And while Francisca Lino is taking sanctuary in this church, she is technically not in hiding. People in this community know she's here. The congregation of this church definitely knows she's here. And Jake, she's not the first undocumented immigrant to take sanctuary here But here's what gives Lino hope. Those doors that you see behind me, the front doors to this church, have never been busted by immigration officials before. Jake. All right, Rosa Flores, thank you so much. And you can tune in tonight to CNN for a special report, The Hidden Workforce, Undocumented America, that airing at 10 p.m. Eastern on CNN. Coming up, a baby, a lame duck, terrible. Just a taste of the tirade President Trump had against a fellow Republican. What sparked the name-calling against Paul Ryan? Stay with us. They're 100%. Paul Ryan was a terrible speaker. Frankly, he was a baby. He didn't know what the hell he was doing. President Trump going after fellow Republican, former House Speaker Paul Ryan, after Ryan said some less than kind things about him in a new book titled American Carnage by Tim Alberta that's out next week. According to Alberta, Ryan suggested that he could not survive another two years as speaker with Trump and viewed retirement as a, quote, escape hatch. So let's chew over all this. Uh, Laura, let me let me start with you. Uh, Here's a little bit more about what Ryan said uh, about Trump in the book, according to The Washington Post, quote, I'm telling you, he didn't know anything about government. I wanted to scold him all the time. He added, this is Ryan about Trump. We helped him make much better, much better decisions, which were contrary to kind of what his knee-jerk reaction was. Now I think he's making some of these knee-jerk reactions. Do you think most Republicans on Capitol Hill see the world the way that Paul Ryan does, even if they don't say so publicly? I think there's a lot more that do, that, that share Ryan's view. Um, and they'll talk about it on background to you, but they won't say it publicly at all. But what's interesting is that Ryan repeatedly defended Trump when he was speaker and that it isn't until he is out of office that he's willing to say what he actually thinks, which is similar to Bob Corker and is similar to Senator Jeff Flake. Um, And and what do you make of all this? Because Paul Ryan was uh, he did help get uh, the tax cuts, the the Trump tax cuts through Congress. Uh, He did. He did at least as far as the Republicans in the House were concerned, get the repeal and replace of Obamacare through the House. He was in many ways 
Trump's ally, at least in terms of his actions. Legislatively, yes. Uh, but when you he also wouldn't comment on any sort of controversial tweets when Trump was in office. He was one of these Republicans that didn't think Trump was going to win. Let's not forget, after the Access Hollywood tape, Ryan was ready to step away from him, and, and he did in a lot of ways. He told Trump not to come to Wisconsin yes. for a fundraiser during the campaign. Yes, yeah, exactly. Event, like, not a fundraiser. Like right, no, yeah, an event right in the wake of that. So yeah. he really uh, betrayed Trump from Trump's perspective mm -hmm. when Trump needed him most. And uh, Trump never really forgot that. And he kind of played, um, you could see that uh, come back ever so often with their relationship where he didn't think that Ryan was quite someone he could trust. David, uh, here's what President Trump said about Paul Ryan just last year. Quote, uh, Speaker Paul Ryan is a truly good man, and while he will not be seeking re-election, he will leave a legacy of achievement that nobody can question. We are with you, Paul. <laughs> well, that's you know, Paul, no, Paul, 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 Paul Ryan was leaving. It's a nice, you know, it's like, you know, he's, he's, it is his banquet. He's at his farewell banquet, giving a toast. Uh, look, it, it's no surprise that Paul Ryan and Donald Trump are two completely different people, right? That isn't even I, the same temperature. I, exactly. So, so I, 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 I know Paul Ryan is a nice guy. I worked with him on the Hill when he was a staffer. I know him as a member. You know, Paul Ryan is kind of a, a walking uh, Congressional Research Service report, a very wonkish, yeah. very into like the, you know, the levers and buttons of how the policy works in Washington. And, and that's not how Donald Trump works, right? I mean, and so for Paul Ryan to say Trump doesn't know anything about Washington, it's, it's, it, that's why he was sent here. Right. People in America voted for Trump and sent him here because he didn't know anything about Washington and he wasn't going to be confined to the to this whatever CRS report said about him. And, and the president, I know for a fact, was very disappointed that that Paul Ryan couldn't get the health care plan done. Right. That was one of the first things out of the block needed to get done. They were going to deliver. They couldn't count the votes and they failed miserably. Well, the president also undermined them. No, but but, no, but my point is, you know, they, they, they kept saying we're going to deliver this for you. We got this done. You know, please send it up. We got it all teed up. You saw this work and then they, they couldn't do it. And I think also you see the president compliments Nancy Pelosi for holding her caucus together, keeping mm -hmm. people disciplined. And he said he said numerous times that yeah. Paul Ryan could never do because that because of the Freedom Caucus. Oh, ex exactly. I mean, look, a couple things. Number one, you know, Paul Ryan should just shut up and go home with this. Come on. You were here. You had an opportunity to make a difference. It's hard to hear him sort of whining about it now. Now, as you said, Lord, he's out of office, so that's easy. It's the hard work is, what did you do when you were here? I mean, he says, oh, we stopped him from making bad decisions. That's not what leadership is about. So it's hard to hear that from Paul Ryan at this point. But I think what, it, what his comments represent, this is what this is the reckoning for the GOP. This is what they wrought. They all, a lot of Republican members were opposed to Trump until he became the president. And now they're, you know, they've sort of made the devil's bargain. I think the book talks about that a bit. And they're sort of getting on board. And, you know, the evangelicals are happy because they got the judges they want. People are afraid to speak out to him, about him. It's, I mean, it took uh, Charlottesville, those horrible, horrible uh, protests in Charlottesville and the death of Heyer, Heather Heyer for people to actually speak out. I don't hear many Republicans saying much about what's going on at the border. So, you know, this is the devil's bargain. And at some point, the Republican Party is going to have to have a reckoning that you let this guy become president and you didn't do anything to stop it. Laura, there, there used to be uh, more Republicans uh, who spoke publicly uh, out uh, against the president. Uh, Senator Bob Corker and Senator Jeff Flake, both of them decided to not seek re-election. Mm -hmm. uh, Justin Amash, a congressman, uh, for Michigan, he just announced he's not going to be a Republican anymore, with the exception of, I guess, Mitt Romney. Is there, and, and occasionally Will Hurd, is there anybody in the Republican Party 
uh, in Washington that speaks against President Trump anymore? None that I can think of, none that come to mind. And those that do, uh, in Amash's case, do so knowing that it's a big risk because he is already facing threats of a primary challenge. Trump is very likely to back whoever runs against him. And so this is very much the party of Trump now. Because he's, cause, so, what he's, so what does that tell you? He's wildly popular in all these Republican districts and these Republican states. He must be doing something right if the Republican, the Republican base has not left him. The party hasn't left him. The party is embracing him. It's certainly true in terms of the Republican base. Absolutely. Everyone stick around. We're going to talk about 2020. New numbers out in a key early state that some of the Democratic presidential candidates are going to want to see. Stay with us. Senator Kamala Harris breathing new life into her criticisms of Joe Biden today, questioning in many ways his preparedness for the Democratic presidential race. We're on a debate stage, and if you have not prepared and you're not ready for somebody to point out a difference of opinion about the history of segregation in our country and what was necessary to deal with that, which at that time was busing, then you're probably not ready. So that, that she's, obviously she's talking about when she criticized Joe Biden for opposing busing and working with segregationists in the 70s to oppose busing when she right. was somebody who, in her view, benefited uh, from busing. Right. Um, what do you think? I think she's right. I mean, look, this is why we have a primary. I would far rather have Joe Biden have to figure out how he's going to answer a question like that now than in a general election context. And I think, frankly, for all of the candidates, I mean, Kamala herself has some issues that she's going to have to figure out how will she respond if she gets challenged on these. And again, that's part of why it's important to I'd rather see these things happen early on in the primary than later in a primary where it can do real damage. And it's also part of why I don't buy this whole argument. I do think there's a point at which you don't want things to get too personal and nasty, but we can't be afraid <laughs> to throw a few punches here and there because you're going to have to take those punches in the general election. David, you're a Trump yep. supporter, but but you, you've, you've been rather bullish on Biden. I have been. And, uh, Not so much these days. <laughs> I know, but you have been bullish on him, and, uh, and as a Pennsylvanian, you, you know that he worked well with our inspector, your former boss. Um, take, out, take, take a look at this new poll out of South Carolina. It might raise some questions as to whether the Harris strategy is working. Uh, 35% of Democratic voters in South Carolina support Biden as the party's nominee. The next closest is Sanders at 14% and Harris at 12 And when you look at black Democratic voters in South Carolina, they're, they're pivotal in that state. They even more overwhelmingly support Biden, 41% with the next candidate at 15%. So if, if Harris is trying to make voters see Biden as... Uh, not comfortable enough with civil rights in the 70s. It at least, with, in this poll, it's not working with African Americans in South Carolina. Yeah, look, those numbers don't seem to reflect it. What I, think, what I think is more telling is when you see Joe Biden on the stage with people who are very nimble, right? He seems very flat-footed, hmm. just out of step. He looks like he lost a step, like he's a former NBA player trying to play, you know, with the current guys right now. He just, he just can't keep up, and he's, his stamina, he's not there. The agility's not there. And so I think as this continues to play out... There's only one debate. He, he, so let's see But the, one, like deba- no, but the one debate is very telling, right? It is very telling. His, his answers weren't good. It take, I mean, it, the follow-up, it takes weeks for him to respond to people, weeks for him to make decisions on things. It doesn't seem like he's, you know, normally campaigns turn on a dime stop the bleeding yeah. pivot and too, I, I don't disagree it is the first debate and there's lots of room for improvement from everybody Absolutely. but this isn't joe biden's first rodeo right. this He's isn't been- his <laughs> first presidential campaign or his first debate so i think that's why it was a little bit 
surprising that he was caught off guard oh, by Kamala Harris. I don't disagree with that. Yeah. Again, we have time. Exactly. I also think that those I think that those polls are also pretty reflective of this generational split amongst the Democratic Party, yes. which is that there are a lot of older black voters in South Carolina and they're very much in line with Biden's views. But younger black voters in other states or younger Latinos in other states don't necessarily see eye to eye with him. And if, you know, it could be a 2008 scenario where if some other candidate that isn't named Biden wins Iowa or New Hampshire, you could see South Carolina flip really quick. Yeah. And obviously, South Carolina, African-Americans, I remember South Carolina, African-Americans overwhelmingly supporting Hillary Clinton until Senator Barack Obama showed that he was a viable candidate by winning the Iowa caucus. Right. And they flipped and he won South Carolina overwhelmingly. Right. I mean, look, a lot of African-American voters in that instance were waiting to see, OK, if you can win the white vote, then we think you can actually get elected. They were a little bit afraid to actually support him but, until but, they but, knew but, he could do but, it. But is that the problem when you have 30 people running? Is anybody ever going to break out? Yeah, that is another question. The next Democratic presidential primary debates, by the way, I would be remiss in not mentioning, <laughs> are going to be right here on CNN. And Dana Bash and Don Lemon will join me in moderating. That will be July 30th. And 31st, live from Detroit, Michigan. Coming up, the latest national hurricane update on Tropical Storm Barry. It's expected any moment. We're going to bring that to you. Stay with us. In our 2020 lead, a handful of Democratic presidential hopefuls will be courting the left wing of the party this weekend. And as CNN's Miguel Marquez now reports, there is one factor at the very top of the minds of these progressive grassroots voters. Progressives here at Netroots Nation believe they can beat President Trump no matter who is nominated. Whoever wins the nomination, including a BLT sandwich, I will go for that. How badly do you want Donald Trump out of the White House? Really, really badly, so badly that um, it's, it's making me ill. But as much as they want a win, progressives expect a candidate who shares their values or at least a centrist who adopts what they want. Will the candidates, including Joe Biden, accept that his base has changed under his feet, that we're demanding economic, racial and social justice as the platform? Biden isn't scheduled to appear, neither is progressive stalwart Bernie Sanders. But surging 2020 hopeful Elizabeth Warren and several other candidates will be there, along with 3,600 activists expected to descend upon the annual conference, the largest ever, according to organizers, progressive momentum picking up steam. We have our largest attendance ever by about 30 percent is an indicator that um, the grassroots is very excited about 2020. Lakeisha, nice to meet you. Community activists in the battleground state of Pennsylvania, which Trump won three years ago, hitting the streets nearly every day, building support. November 2020, a powerful motivator. 25-year-old Anthony Davis had never even registered to vote till the election of Donald Trump. Now I'm an active voter. I make sure that I go down to the polls every election. I make sure that I'm, I'm there. I show up. And he's not alone. Activists across the left say President Donald J. Trump is keeping them focused. Oh, man, everybody's gung-ho. Uh, everybody's coming out. Kids, mothers, brothers-in-laws, pets, dogs, if they can vote, they can wait. Now, we asked around quite a bit of a a lot of progressives here at Netroots Nation, and so far they don't say they don't see any, there's none of the rancor or the division of 2016 when the party was so split. They think the DNC is being a fair arbiter, the DNC even taking part in some of the workshops here. From your hometown, back to you, Jake. All right, beautiful city. Miguel Marquez, thanks so much. And tune in on Sunday morning to State of the Union. My guest will be Democratic presidential candidate Mayor Bill de Blasio and acting Citizenship and Immigration Services Director Ken 
Cuccinelli. That's 9 a.m. and noon Eastern on Sunday. I will see you then. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Thanks for watching. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.